0: our Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. There are men coming up the aisles right now. If you're with us without a Bible this morning, you'll be fairly lost. And so just wave to them and uh, they'll get a Bible into your hand and you'll be able to follow along, not only listening, but be able to see it with your own eyes. And the Word can have twice the effect that way. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from uh, us to you today. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll study uh, verses 5 through 11 this morning, but we'll pick the context up by beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we know that this book is really kind of a closed book to us if the author, if your Holy Spirit doesn't open it up to us. Uh, Many of us remember trying to make sense of your Bible and reading it before we came to know you, and uh, there was definitely a veil there. And uh, Lord, we want to understand this magnificent section of Scripture that speaks to our Savior. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would open it up to us and that every reason this description of him is in the Scripture would also be accomplished within our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, the Apostle Paul, continues his instruction to us, as Christians, uh, as to how to live in such a way, to conduct ourselves uh, in a way that should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the Church of Philippi was a church that really anyone would have uh, loved to have attended. And it was warm, it was caring, it was faithful to God, it was faithful. Uh, to one another, but a relatively minor relational problem uh, in the church was now starting to create a division there. And uh, this conflict was increasingly becoming the focus uh, of the church, and the Apostle Paul, knowing uh, very well the danger of this kind of thing to a local church, uh, he uh, steps in and he instructs them concerning it. And so as we studied last week, Paul instructed these Christians who were so dear to him that in the light of all of the consolation, all of the comfort, all of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, all of the affection and mercy that we have received from God as Christians, uh, that we are to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, uh, to reject any selfish ambition. Uh, and conceit in our hearts, to in lowliness of mind esteem others better than ourselves, and not only to uh, live with our own interests in mind, but to keep the interests of others in mind as well. And now what he does in verse 5 is just simply magnificent because he turns our attention to Jesus as our example in all of this and as our motivation for living that kind of a life and obeying these commands of verses 1 through 4. You might remember that Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify or speak of me. And Jesus was communicating to them, that salvation was found in Him uh, and not in the keeping of the law of Moses or the keeping of the commandments of the New Testament, but it kept it, 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 that salvation occurs through faith uh, in, in Him and, and that the volume of the book, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, speak of Jesus. And it's for this reason that no Bible study Uh, is ever quite complete until that Bible study or that truth is brought brought around to Jesus in some uh, way. And this is why when you listen to a Bible study uh, or a teacher is saying something that we should apply to our lives from a Bible passage uh, in one way or another, we listen politely, but we do so with some reservation. Uh, And until he or she says, and in passage such and such, uh, Jesus taught the same thing. Or we see Jesus doing exactly the same thing that, for instance, Paul is calling us to do uh, uh, here. And immediately inside of us, there's just this, ah. And we realize if Jesus taught it, and if Jesus lived it, then the truth that's being proclaimed to us is safe to embrace for ourselves. And so uh, we do exactly that. And so Paul made some very, very great demands of each of us as Christians in verses 1 through 4, and now he illustrates those very same things in the life and the teaching of Jesus. And, uh, And in doing so, the intent is that All resistance to living what he's commanded us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 4 would melt away in any serious uh, Christian. And here in presenting Jesus as our example in maintaining unity uh, in a local church or in the body of Christ as a whole uh, from a a life of total sacrificial other-centeredness, Uh, that marked the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit narrows our focus down in this passage to the two great examples of these things from Jesus' life. And the first one is Jesus' incarnation in verses 6 and 7, and then Jesus' crucifixion, His death upon the cross in verse 8. Paul begins in verse 5 by commending the mind of Christ to us in this regard he says let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus we ask ourselves what mind the mind that he had already described in verses one through four that is again in calling on us to live self-sacrificially for the health of a local body for the health of uh, the body of Christ as as a whole for the unity uh, of that local church and Paul is simply calling <clears throat> on us in doing so to have the mind of Christ, to follow the example of Jesus in this regard. He begins that, that verse with a very important word, and it's the word let. And uh, the reason it's important is because in the Greek, let this mind, it's a single word, and it's in the present tense, and it's also in the passive voice say, oh, brother, <laughs> it's not a seminary, this is a Sunday morning. No, but it's very important, trust me. And, and it, the meaning is that this is not something in terms of this, this mind of Christ, not something that we're called uh, to do or to accomplish or to have in our own natural strength, but it's something that the Holy Spirit will accomplish in our lives if I don't resist Him. And in fact, he will produce this mind of Christ in us as a continual present tense characteristic of our thinking. So the mind of Christ is something that the Holy Spirit is always wanting to produce within us so that we might experience the blessing, the joy, the fruitfulness of having it characterize our, our life continually. Now, that's a mouthful, but this... Becomes a reality in our lives as we just yield to the Holy Spirit and uh, His work in our life and conforming us into the image of Christ. And a good prayer for us to pray whenever we're in conflict with other people, as was happening at Philippi, or we're in a disagreement with another Christian, is to just say, Father, even though everything in my flesh wants to respond very differently. Uh, in In this this situation, would you please give me a, 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 and fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit and give me the mind of Christ in this situation and toward this person or toward these people and God will uh, do it if we will, in the words of the apostle Paul here, uh, let him and the idea is that each of us has a responsibility in these kind of circumstances. Uh, to let the Holy Spirit accomplish this in our lives. Again, in our passage this morning, Paul reminds us how uh, this mind described in verses 1 through 4 was on full display in Jesus' incarnation and also uh, in His crucifixion. And that is uh, how this mindset governed His decisions and his actions concerning those two great events in his life. The mind of Christ, in verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us, was on full display in Jesus' incarnation. The word incarnation means, literally, in flesh. And so Jesus' incarnation speaks of his taking on human flesh, as a result of the miracle of his conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and then his subsequent birth into human history and and being in that birth fully God and fully man. And the Holy Spirit put it this way through the Apostle John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But before getting into Jesus' incarnation in verse uh, 7, Paul emphasizes here Jesus' pre-existence in verse 6. Because how in the world can we appreciate the sacrifice and the humility involved in Jesus' incarnation without knowing what he left in introducing himself in this way into human uh, history. And so Paul describes Jesus in verse 6 as being in the form of God. And this speaks of Jesus' eternal preexistence before his incarnation, and, and in that eternal preexistence that he was divine, and, uh, and he was divine as the Son of God. Again, the Apostle John reinforces this point elsewhere when he begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, that is, Jesus. Before the beginning began, of anything that had a beginning... In the beginning was Jesus, and the Word was with God, that is Jesus, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it reminds us that Jesus did not come into existence at the moment of his birth into human history. When Paul writes uh, and uses this word form related to uh, Jesus, here don't think of form as a physical shape, but think of it in uh, the sense of nature and character. That is, Jesus, as uh, someone put it so perfectly, Jesus possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature and character of God the Father himself. And so this communicates essentially that Jesus existed as one with the Father in his preexistence. He tells us further that Jesus in verse 6 did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And so, again, here we are uh, uh, informed of Jesus' deity, uh, of the fact that he was and is equal uh, with God the Father, but that despite that equality... Uh, Despite being fully divine and enjoying all of the glory, all of the rights, all of the privileges of deity in heaven uh, from eternity past, in becoming a man, he voluntarily laid aside not his deity, but the full expression of some of his uh, divine attributes as well as his heavenly glory. And all of the unique uh, joys and blessings uh, uh, that he enjoyed in heaven itself, including heaven as an environment uh, of pure holiness. And that is what he left for a time uh, in his incarnation. And when Paul declares uh, 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 of Jesus that he did not uh, consider it robbery to be equal with God, that word robbery is equally translated to be grasped at. So, robbery is essentially to take something from someone else and now cling to it as my own. And Jesus did not cling to His heavenly glory, to His heavenly rights and privileges when uh, voluntarily releasing them for a time uh, was required in His becoming man in order to provide for our salvation. And then he tells us in verse 7, Jesus made himself of no reputation in doing so in his incarnation. And you have there in verse 7 the phrases, making himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And each of those statements emphasize the immeasurable humility and sacrifice demonstrated by Jesus in his incarnation, and even being born into the world, and not only in his birth, but in the three and a half, 33 and a half years of his uh, life and of his ministry here. And while I don't think that it's possible for any mere man Uh, to communicate the greatness of the humility and the sacrifice on the part of Jesus involved in His incarnation. I think there is a place that we can go to on the face of this earth to even begin to scratch the surface related to what was involved in that humiliation and in that sacrifice. And it is found in Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prayed to the father on the night before his crucifixion and it gives us a hint at the sacrifice that was involved and Jesus prayed to the father I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work that you have given me to do and now O father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was and it communicates his longing to return to his former glory but only after he had accomplished uh, the uh, providing the means of salvation uh, to us but his longing to be able to join the Father there uh, himself I think that Very often when we think of Jesus' sacrifice concerning our sin, we can tend to think of it solely in terms of the cross. But that's not where Paul begins here in this passage. He begins at Jesus' incarnation because that's where his enormous sacrifice on our behalf began. There's great mystery. There are so many books written on this section of Scripture that we're studying here this morning. I mean, it's it's a a theologian's dream to dig into all of this. But there's a lot of mystery that's involved in it uh, as well, which I have no problem with. I expect mystery in a relationship with God because you have me, the finite, in relationship with the infinite, so there's going to be Uh, be mystery, but we're in very good company in this regard because the Apostle Paul himself wrote of all of this elsewhere in 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, speaking of Jesus, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory." But for all of the mystery of the passage, the point is absolutely clear that in the light of the greatness of the humility and sacrifice of Jesus exhibited on our behalf uh, uh, concerning the incarnation alone, we're to clothe ourselves with all of the sacrifice, all of the humility that is required in order to resolve our disputes with one with one another as Christians. Disputes that are born out of, as Paul said, selfishness and ambition and pride and any other carnality. And Paul goes on to make this point clear still when he reminds us second here of the mind of Christ on full display in his crucifixion in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death. And then the next word is circleable in your Bible. Even the death of the cross. And there's a lot bound up in that phrase. Even the death of the cross. Now Today we esteem the cross very, very highly as Christians. And we reverence the thought of the cross, but that is only because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because he overwhelmed it, he reidentified it and redefined it uh, on that day in which he died for our sins. But that wasn't the attitude of the crowd that surrounded him when he hung on that cross that day, and it wasn't the attitude of the Roman Empire. Uh, In the midst uh, uh, of uh, of which Philippi was uh, the the church that that Paul wrote this to, it wasn't the attitude toward the cross when Paul wrote this epistle. The death on the cross was not a natural death. Uh, He didn't come to die a natural death. Uh, it, It was a criminal's death. It was torture and death all rolled into one. And it was a death that not only smote the body, but it was a death that smote the mind. It smote the emotions. It was a shame-filled death. And you remember that the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote of this uh, himself concerning uh, Jesus when he said that he endured the cross, despising the shame. While he hung upon that cross, he despised the shame of being on that cross and you think about the physical torture of the cross and, but also the very shame of the very Son of God and God the Son hanging on the cross covered with his own blood uh, unrecognizable as a man uh, Isaiah tells us crucified by his own creation and then you think about the blasphemies that were heaped upon him by the Jewish religious leaders while he hung upon the cross in that physical condition. They had already secured his death. That was already well in progress, but they're not content with that. So they then sought to wound his heart and to wound his mind and in an equal measure by heaping their blasphemies upon him. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Ha, 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 is a kind of a joke among the religious leaders at the base of that cross. He saved others, himself he cannot save. He trusted in God, let him, that is God, deliver him now if he will have him. Casting doubt uh, and attempt to, in the mind of Jesus, of the love of the Father... In in uh, in in regard to the circumstances that he found himself in upon the cross, and why did he endure it, though sinful himself, uh, sinless himself, he did so in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, and how did he do it? He did it through humility and self-surrender and through self-sacrifice. Through, in the words of the Apostle Paul, earlier in the chapter, through lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than himself, looking out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. The very thing that the Apostle Paul calls us to uh, here in chapter 2. It is almost as if Paul is saying to some in the church in Philippi and to us as needed. Take your carnal dispute and fight it out at the base of that cross if you can. At the scene of the brutal death of the one who died to make all of us Christians to bring the church into existence and see if his example on the cross doesn't uh, humble anyone And these far lesser disagreements that can occur and and silence uh, our arguments. Paul then goes on to speak of Jesus' exaltation and the exaltation that accompanies this kind of life that Jesus lived. The exaltation that doesn't come from the world. It comes from a far better place. It comes from God Himself in verses 9 through 11 And therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. God has exalted him in his resurrection, exalted him in his ascension, exalted him to uh, his right hand uh, in uh, heaven. And Paul declares in verse 10, at the name of Jesus, uh, every knee is going to bow. One day at the end of the age... Every single human being, whether saved or unsaved, every single angelic being, whether fallen or faithful, they're going to bow before Jesus. We're going to in acknowledgement and in submission to his authority and to his person. And not only are we going to uh, be on bended knee one day in this regard, but Paul says in verse 11, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day this same group is going to confess him to be everything that he declared himself to be. And this doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved one day. Uh, death ends that opportunity to be saved. But the saved are going to confess this concerning Jesus with joy joy. And those who have rejected Jesus' salvation and rejected Him as a result will do so immediately before uh, entering into a righteous judgment. And all it will be done, we're told here by Paul, the end of verse 11, to the glory of uh, God the Father, to the glory of His love, to the glory of the perfection of His wisdom, To the glory of His grace, to the glory of His truth, to the glory of His righteousness. All of it represented in His providing mankind with a Savior in the purpose of His Son. And the point, notice that, therefore, in verse 9, verses 9 through 11, uh, to paraphrase how uh, someone put it uh, so perfectly are God's vindication of Jesus' example to us in this. In other words, did Jesus manifest uh, this mind that produced His incarnation and His death upon the cross, did He manifest such a mind to His ultimate uh, detriment? And the answer is no. No that God would never let that happen. And the point is that God will never let that happen in our lives as we follow Jesus' example in this regard. Jesus himself promised us in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, as he spoke to the disciples, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the point that Paul is making is that no Christian will ever incur any ultimate harm for obeying Paul's uh, call upon us uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that God simply will not allow it uh, to happen. The purpose of this very theological passage of of Paul concerning Jesus' pre-existence, concerning His incarnation, concerning His crucifixion, it is not the theology alone, but to present these things and to present Christ to us uh, as an example in our own lives that we might be an influence for unity in the body of Christ. Whatever humility is involved, whatever sacrifice is involved. But I'd like you to allow me in closing here just one other application. Very simple application, but a very important one. It's important to notice that the word mind is used four times in the first five verses of chapter 2. The last use of it is found in verse 5 calling on us to have the same mind Jesus had uh, and uh, concerning humility and other centeredness the greek word that paul uses in all four places is exactly the same and it means to think to have a mindset to be minded it carries the idea of using one's mind for thoughtful planning Uh, It has the idea of to be wise. And what this tells us is that these decisions of Jesus concerning His incarnation and concerning His crucifixion were supremely the product of His mind. They were the product of His thinking. His decisions concerning His incarnation and crucifixion were not self-existent, they weren't purely emotional, they were the product of his mind, they were uh, the product of his mindset, of his thinking, and we see the emphasis upon his decision-making all the way through the passage. In verse 7, he made himself himself, of no reputation. In verse 7, he took the form of a bondservant. In verse 8, he humbled himself. These were decisions that he made, decisions that came from his mind. And thus in the power of the Holy Spirit, our decision-making in conflict and really in all regards needs to be the product of our minds as well as opposed to our emotions. The significance of this simple lesson uh, for us as Christians in the United States of America is perfectly encapsulated by the statement of a Christian apologist when he declared, how do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? How do you connect with a generation? And that is Connect with truth. How do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? And it isn't just the younger generation in the United States uh, of America, but increasingly, I think it characterizes every generation in the United States uh, of America. You see these plaques that you can buy or sayings that are within our culture. Things that go like this. There are no rules. Just follow your heart. And you see these kind of things being spoken at weddings or uh, at graduation services and these kind of things. There are no rules. Just follow your heart. Here's another one. Sometimes you just have to stop thinking so much and just go where your heart takes you. Now that might be good counsel for the person who is paralyzed at the counter of Baskin-Robbins over what ice cream cone they're going to have that day, but it is very bad counsel for how to make decisions in life. The prophet Jeremiah got it exactly right when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so decisions we made, uh, make based solely upon our emotions or our feelings, as opposed to our minds, and more specifically, the mind of Christ, will be a constant source of error, of damage in our life, of regret in our life. Decisions we make with the mind, and specifically with the mind of Christ, in shunning selfish ambition and conceit and self-absorption, embracing lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than myself as being con- and being concerned about others as much as I am about myself, based upon the example of Jesus and, and the teaching of the Bible, it will always produce a life of inner peace and of joy. And this is especially important to recognize and to understand and to remember when we find ourselves in a highly emotional situation, as was the case there in the church in Philippi, involving conflicts that affect our uh, relationships with other people, relationships that are important to us. But it includes any situation in our lives where uh, it occurs and we immediately become emotionally charged by the situation and, or the situation produces a strong emotional uh, response in us. And now emotion is driving all of my decision-making as opposed to the mind of Christ, as opposed to the mind of Christ. And those situations will rarely end with a cause for joy in our lives when we look back on them one day. Emotions play an important part in our lives. They're an important part of every relationship that we have in life. They're an important part of our relationship with God. Jesus said that we're to love God with all of our heart. That's our emotion. All of our heart, mind, soul, and strength but they're always to be governed by the mind, and for Christians, by the mind of Christ. Joy in the Christian life is in large part tied to our decision-making, whether our decisions come forth from the mind of Christ or from our ungoverned emotions. And so we ask ourselves this morning, the privacy of our own hearts, are there any situations in our lives this morning in which we are being driven purely by emotion, making purely emotional, emotional, emotion driven decisions? And if we are, then to pull back, go to prayer, go to the Bible. Go to the Holy Spirit for our wisdom and regain the mind of Christ in that situation. Because we know there's joy there. We know there's joy in the mind of Christ because Jesus declared of Himself to us as His disciples. Again, John chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank You for the beauty of this description of our Savior and of the sacrifice and the other-centeredness that was involved in Him even coming into the earth to say nothing of one day dying on the cross, that we might be in a room like this today, saved, indwelt by Your Holy Spirit, confident of Of heaven at the end of this life enjoying a life that is an abundant life and all of the other blessings that are ours as Christians and we thank you for the example that the Apostle Paul has made of Jesus in these things that you call us to they make us realize to just have that ah moment and to realize that these things are safe that if they were safe and profitable for him they are for us as well And so we commit this morning in a fresh way and submit to the work of your Holy Spirit and letting this mind be our mind as well. Continue to fashion that mind within us, Lord, the same mind of Christ that we might experience all of the joy that is found in life in possessing such a mind. We pray too, Lord, for one another here this morning and... We all understand very well what it is for something to so break our heart, to so enrage us, to so infuriate us, or so, to so uh, hurt us that emotion takes over, and now we can spend not only long hours, but long days and weeks and even months being driven by emotion in our decision making rather than the mind of Christ in all of the disaster that comes with all of that and we thank you for this passage that instructs us and warns us away from all of that at a return to the mind of Jesus this morning. May that be a good word Lord and a needed word in any of our hearts as you see is necessary in this room today. Thank you for your living word. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.